Hey, welcome to Rebel Business. My name is Mayhul Patel. I got my co-host here, Paul Samuel. How's it going? It's going all right. We got some crazy uh, winds and rain in New York. So if you hear some howling in the background, um, it's uh, it's not my torture room back there. It's uh, it's it's Mother Nature. You guys have um, been having some gnarly weather between the yeah. like super humid, hot, sticky summer to rain and windstorms. What's going on it's, over there? It's, like, it's just like summer turned off uh, like a light switch, and now we're we're full into fall and uh, this crazy wet season. But it's all right. I don't mind. I like the fall. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll jump into it, man, because this was one of those weeks when the Fed spoke and the markets listened. Uh, uh, for those of you who probably uh, heard this already uh, during the week, we'll repeat it. The Fed decided to keep interest rates um, exactly where uh, they are, or the Fed rate, I should say, uh, exactly where it is. So that's sort of uh, what the market pretty much was thinking was going to happen. Um, and then, of course, uh, after they announced it, there were 80 million opinions about what's going to happen next. Um, and it's, I, I think what we've been talking about for months, Paul is actually accurate. It's going to be a pause, but the rates will stay up and elevated for a long while. That's, that's my full on belief that that's, what's going to happen. I don't think that anytime someone's like, oh, well then they're going to cut rates, uh, next, uh, spring. I, I laugh. I'm like, all right, so you're a moron. Um, I, I, don't, I just dismissed that market opinion completely they might i mean it's possible that they start to slowly cut rates but the effect of these rate increases is not immediate people you, you know people feel the weight of it when they've accelerated uh these rate increases you know half point three quarter point increases in short order that has you know a, a much faster impact but when you do these quarter point hikes, you know, every two, three months uh, or however, uh, however much they've been doing it recently, it doesn't really take that much of effect until next year. Right. Six, nine yeah. months. No, you're so. right. It, it, it's, a, it's, it's not as if it's like, you know, immediate. I mean, for variable rate loans, sure, the impact's immediate, but the economic impact lags. Right. I mean, right. Obviously, at the end of that month, people are paying more on their interest when they raise rates. Uh, but the actual impact on how much somebody spends, how much a company, you know, interest expense is incurred versus how much revenue they have, that that takes months, quarters. You're right. Um, it just seems to me that the Fed knows uh, that we printed a lot of money. And that's what has caused this. Um, I don't. I don't think it is anything else. Just imagine playing Monopoly, and then suddenly somebody comes in with more fake money, and just throws it onto the board. Um, and that's kind of what's happened. And I just think it's going to take some time um, for this to to get, you know, to level out. I mean, because there's just certain things that are so high price right now still. I mean, homes, anybody who's looking for a home will tell you this is insanity. Yeah. It's it's so difficult to find a home, particularly resale home, um, because that person's locked into a low rate and you have to buy at a much higher rate. And there's just a discrepancy there. And yeah. Look, you're. it's like 
you do the math on it, it's like twelve to fifteen hundred dollars in additional interest that you're paying on the same, you know, same same, property value, the same purchase price, same purchase price. Yeah. Just right? because just the rate has gone up. Yep. And we just haven't seen that, right? We haven't seen that before. You know, one thing that I think if you want to kind of see when you believe the dam might be cracking as far as on housing prices, I think it's watch, you know, Airbnbs, right? Because a lot of those are second homes, third homes, single family rentals, right? Most people own a home and rent it out. You know, forget about the Airbnb month to month or weekend type rental. The person who buys a home and rents it to somebody for a year, those that's where I think you might see softness first, right? Because we will probably hit a point where rents peak. And if that person has a mortgage that's variable rate, which they very well might be because you don't get a great mortgage on a second home, a third home, right. investment property. You don't get the same as somebody who lives in their house, right? That's where you might see the first level of softness where it's like, wait a second, I was renting this house for $2,000 a month, but my mortgage was a thousand. Now it's 1700 because it's variable rate. And this is getting, this is getting tight for me. As I still got property taxes, I still got insurance, I still have maintenance I have to do on this house. That might be where you see the first signs where someone's like, you know what? This was an investment property. I made some money. I bought this house for $250,000, whatever. I'll sell it for two twenty-five. dollars uh, that, that might happen. That might happen. I don't think it's going to happen next month. But that, I think, is something to watch for if somebody is out there who wants to monitor the situation, I would look at single family rentals in your locality and see what's going on there that you might actually find a purchase there uh, because that person has a very different um, ethos than somebody who's like, this is my home. This is where I live. The longer we stay at this, the more pressure, more downward pressure it puts on anybody holding real estate. And, and that's the thing, like I, I've said it countless times now and I'll keep saying it. I don't understand how anybody could possibly think there's some soft landing when you have a trillion and a half dollars of commercial mortgages maturing over the next 30 to 36 months. I just don't get it. You know, I I don't get how um, the markets aren't going to be affected by that. That, that, Markets will be affected by it. I think the, you know, census on it is that uh, commercial real estate, the impact of that doesn't really trickle down to the consumer. Um, It is highly concentrated in, you know, the pockets of some very, you know, wealthy funds and developers. I I guess. I, I, I don't know. It just, I feel like it'll mess up balance sheets so much that it may, you know, banks may pull back on lending and, and that, that probably would affect the average consumer or a small businesses, certainly. Um, and then certainly on the mortgage side, but it's, it's just one of these things that's definitely going to come down the pike. And it just seems like each week there's a little bit more recognition that it's coming, um, that it's, it's almost here. 
and we'll see what happens. I just, I, I still am shocked at how little it gets discussed. We talk more about, you know, what the Fed policy is and that, you know, gas is, you know, up, right? It's up. Oh, it's, it's six bucks here in California. Yeah. It's six seventy wow, in six some bucks. Well, nationally, I think it just crossed four. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, California is always yeah. very expensive, but yeah, I mean, oil prices have spiked again. Um, and so that's, that's obviously that made the headlines to this uh, week as far as inflation was concerned. So, you know, I think there's, they're still worried. And, and, and that's my point. It, it went up again and it just feels like the rates are going to have to stay up there for a while. Um, I just don't see this reconciling without most of 2024 with high rates. I, yeah, I don't think we're going to be in any environment where it's we're you know very loose monetary or fiscal policy, um, but I think there are the to your point a lot of headwinds. So you've got higher crude prices, you've got very soft economy in China, which you know for decades now has been our primary supplier of uh, of hard goods and and a lot of soft goods too, but. Um, I think that that's worth, you know, a minute on itself. Oh but, yeah, that changed this week. Yeah. <laughs> well, probably not this week. It's been changing prior over the last year, but you know, Mexico now um, exports more goods and services to the United States than any other country. Uh, it passed China. That's big news. I mean, that, that that's big news. That geopolitically, that's big news. That might help save in costs because you're not now putting these on boats and bring goods and services here. Um, hopefully we concentrate on that border issue, which, you know, it's just, we have two political parties that have just made a mess of it. Um, but it is a big shift, you know, the eighties and nineties was dominated by Japan as our trade partner. And then the early two thousands, it was China and now it's Mexico. Um, I think it is significant. Um, I think that is a new economy that I think people in the U.S. are going to also start looking at as well um, as a place to do business because it's right there. It's not far. You know, you get direct flights to pretty much every major city in Mexico. Uh, from here, you can get there in three hours, three and a half hours. Um, and the time difference is you know, it's no different than continental U.S. for mm -hmm. West Coast and East Coast. So um, I thought that was really significant news. Um, I think long run, it seems like it's it's good because it, it, there's some common sense reasons why it would cost less for them to be our trade partner. Um, so, I, so, so some of it is cost and, and, you know, speed of delivery. The pandemic obviously brought that all to the forefront because nobody wanted to wait for these barges coming from China that were yeah. sitting docked, um, you know, yeah. uh, in Asia. But I think what we're seeing, what we saw because of the pandemic and what we're seeing more of today is nearshoring uh, through Mexico. And, and what's interesting is like the auto manufacturers, a lot of the auto manufacturers that are doing uh, assembly in Mexico, there are parts being made in Detroit um, and being sent to Mexico where there's, you know, value added um, fabrication and, and assembly being done and then uh, shipped back into the U S. So there's um, there's an advantage in terms of speed of delivery, proximity, right. Geopolitical risk. Uh, but 
in terms of cost, I still don't think you beat China. And so you can get into a, a situation where you start to rely more and more on Mexico for uh, manufacturing and assembly production. But ultimately, if you want to be price competitive, it's China. It's still China. It's still Asia. Do you still think even with the obvious, you know, logistical favorability of, of, a, of a country that borders you, you still think the China can still produce uh, well below the number that Mexico can. Probably not yep. on all goods and services, but on a, on a lot of them. Probably yep. the commodity stuff, I would presume. So so I, there was an article, I think it was in New York Times, talking about a textile um, company that popped up in Mexico and was basically serving U.S. customers uh, who needed uniforms, uh, employee uniforms. And the really interesting part of the whole story was they kind of shifted the the market in some sense, uh, and product production has moved to um, to Mexico. But all of the yarn and the fabric is still sourced out of China. <laughs> it's oh, produced there. Yeah. It's so still that, that kind of the cheapest material, there. The yeah. unassembled stuff is still coming from China. Right, and so you've you've shifted some. You know, you've de-risked some but you haven't fully extricated yourself yeah. from the in, Chinese in way, economy. And, that, and that's interesting, Paul, because, you know, the, if you're following headlines about the Chinese economy, you know, it's, it's a fairly negative, right? It's slowing, it's contracting. And, you know, one of the principles in economy is materials versus finished goods. You know, if you if you make finished goods, you're you're going to make more on margin versus just selling materials. And that's another part of what could happen to the Chinese economy is that for so long they were making the great margin on the finished product and now they may actually have to move away from that and it's like, well, we'll still be part of the supply chain, but it's the materials that we're going to be providing, which again, that's much lower margin. Uh, yep. than the finished product. So that could also spell some of the issues with their economy that people are projecting. You know, they, they have got all types of issues. You could spend a whole episode on what's going on over there, but that's just another thing that you pointed out that they could be affected with, um, it, which is interesting, you know, but I, I think the fact that Mexico is right there, one pretty interesting thing that I could see is more, you know, U.S., citizens going there to start businesses. I think immigration from in 2021 of U.S. citizens immigrating there was up 22%. Now, while it was only 10,000 people, it was up 22%. And that might be a trend that we start to see. It's a trend that I think is going to happen. I have a friend who's down there who built a bunch of houses and renting them out. Um, and just through him meeting people um, that are starting businesses there or looking for opportunities, I think over the next year or two, we are going to see a sizable increase of people from the U.S. moving there um, and finding businesses to operate or maybe literally just be opening up businesses specifically in Mexico. But I think that's a trend that's it's coming. It's, it's here. And it's just like when you start seeing uh, – people posting stuff from that are 
traveling from Beverly Hills, from South Beach, Miami, hanging out in Mexico City on Instagram, like it's that shift is happening. The comfort level of going there is already very, very, very high. And I think the next thing is people are going to be like, well, why don't I do business here? Uh, but I think that trend's coming. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it, there are certain pockets of, of Mexico that have been or, or well-established outposts for U.S. businesses to, you know, have a subsidiary. The, there's still, you know, this overarching problem with the drug war, right? No, and, the cartel is still an issue. You don't have the most stable government, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a there's a lot of factors, but I think somebody is going to probably find it in the U.S. easier to invest in Mexico than in China. Let's put it that way. Definitely, um, yeah. Or, or even Japan, who are, who are our last two largest trade partners. I think this is the first time where um, somebody in the U.S. might think, well, that is our largest trade partner. Maybe there's something over there for me to do. And you couldn't really logistically, culturally, language, all of that with China and Japan. It's just very difficult unless you're a large conglomerate company. Right? Even then, uh, they failed very miserably. Uh, Chrysler, yeah, Volkswagen. Because local yeah. matters, right? Like yeah. you got to understand like the local landscape. It's pretty difficult for you or I to just be like, yeah, let's just go to Tokyo, dude, and, and start a business or figure out if there's opportunities or go to Beijing. Um, whether the environment's welcoming or not, you don't know the local landscape. I mean, even if you told me to go to Little Rock, Arkansas, it would take me some time to figure out what's going on. Forget about, you know, going to another country. Local matters, right? It, it really does, which brings us to, uh, you know, one of the things that we we saw that kind of is underscored by local, which was Whole Foods, which I didn't, I didn't know this about Whole Foods. I didn't, under, I didn't know how Whole Foods started at all, but it basically it was a very local experiment that worked, right? This... Uh, God, what was his name? John uh, Mackey. Mackey. Yeah. Mackey. Yeah. Yeah. He, 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 so he basically, he was not a vegetarian at all, nope. apparently. And then suddenly he was dating somebody who introduced him to all of this health, uh, fitness type, um, related foods in the late seventies, I believe. Yeah. I think it was like 78 or so. Yeah. And so he opened up, uh, they opened up, I guess, kind of like a hippie co-op. It was a house uh, in Austin, Texas, catering to healthy food. And that was kind of the, I mean, really the birth of Whole Foods. I mean, it obviously developed over time, but what he recognized was in that specific community of Austin, Texas, in the late seventies, this is what people wanted. In, in a very narrow pocket, right? Yes. Like that's, that's what the beauty of it was. Um, Texas in general, you know, is littered with huge grocery chains. So competing against some of these large incumbents, especially in Texas, not the easiest task. What he figured out was there was a pocket Austin, you know, obviously a little left leaning more, um, you yeah. probably find more vegetarians there than you would outside of, uh, in other parts of Texas. Particularly in the seventies. Right. I'm vegetarian. I don't even like, 
you know, that, that, that was beyond, you know, novel in the seventies. You're like, you said, very narrow. But yeah, there's, there's a whole host of people that he tapped into that are willing to pay for organic, for, um, locally sourced for, um, you know, eco-friendly packaging, all of that and, uh, all of that and above. Right. Right. It was, he also then started obviously bring in other types of food to, you know, make it a thriving business. But what I found interesting is when he showed, uh, venture capitalists initially, um, what you just described, Hey, you know, I have this narrow path. That's not so narrow that it's more of a niche group of people that really want clean food. Um, and he got rejected constantly. They didn't want to invest in it. Uh, I think one of them was quoted saying, I just think that you guys are just a bunch of hippies with a handful of stores. And I just don't see how you can grow this. Um, and so I'm sure that was frustrating, but to his credit, you know, when you do know something local and you know it, it's, it's a pretty, it's empowering, right? It's very empowering. You get stubborn over the fact that you, you, you know, that there is demand here for this and he did, and he just kept going at this and trying to find an investor that could see this you know, this expansion vision, which he eventually did get, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. You I know, mean, when they people, sold to Amazon, they had four or 500 yeah. locations across the country. But I think what's interesting here is a um, couple things. So, you know, this, I, I lived in San Francisco for 10 years. Um, this model of, you know, local, uh, organic, uh, kind of salt of the earth, uh, grocer, that has been around for a really long time and on a, you know, micro level can be very successful. I I used to go to a couple of places, uh, rainbow groceries, one well-known in the mission area that, you know, they're expensive, but they're very well-known for the high quality products that they carry, but you don't see rainbow grocery building out this national chain. Right. So I think what he really figured out in terms of like supply chain and uh, local network was how he could create really unique shopping experience um, store by store. Right. So my, I have two whole foods here within, you know, three or four miles of me and they carry different stuff and, um, they have the spectrum now with Amazon, it's a different story, but they carry a spectrum of like kind of mainstream to highly gourmet, uh, skews. And so people, you know, you can show up at whole foods and spend, they call it whole paycheck, right? That's the nickname. You can spend a ton of money, but you can actually also go there for staples and get very high quality food without having to pay, you know, your entire paycheck. It's still a little bit more expensive than you would pay at a different grocery store, but their status in, you know, saying I shop at Whole Foods and I care about my it health. It just make and... people feel safe buying food from yep. there. I mean, that's the bottom line. The brand itself is that. To me, yep. that's what it is. It's if I just move to a, a new city, um, 
and I type in groceries on my phone and I see Whole Foods, there's just almost no question that's where I'm going to go first. And then I'll figure out, oh yeah, if there's a, what you, what you described, if there's a boutique yep. grocer around there, I'll go there. But he was able to establish this brand that you trusted is the food here is healthy. Um, and you know, that's, that's Whole Foods. I mean, not all the food on all the shelves, of course, but you do feel like there's some quality control on the produce and oh, on, absolutely. The, on the meat, on yeah. anything that is delivered fresh. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it is. It is higher quality. I can attest to that. I'm like a resident expert on buying meat and, yeah. and it's, it's just better. And, and look at that. That's what the brand was based on because locally he knew way back when that that's what his local customers um, wanted. And, and I just think that, like, like I said, I think that's just so important is that you, you, you have to know that, you, you know, we talked about it with Lego reaching out to their customers and, and figuring out what they wanted. And I guess what happened with Whole Foods, they did struggle um, in the mid to two thousands, probably they started to struggle uh, because there were so many copycats. Everybody looked at what they did and said, well, that's what we should be doing. So, you know, while they were wildly successful, they also created a bunch of competitors, right? Because yep. it's a copycat world when you're successful. When a team wins a Super Bowl by throwing the ball 50 times, you know what happens the next year? Everybody throws the ball 51 right. times. And so that's what happened. And then they just couldn't really get the growth model right and and that's ultimately why they sold to amazon now granted they sold for i believe 13 billion dollars so it wasn't as if uh it was a sad moment for uh the people that were initially involved it was a it's a wild screaming success story um but ultimately it's another kind of interesting one where if you're that successful people are going to copy you and there may not be much you can do um and in this case there wasn't, but they had an exit and it was a great exit. I thought it was, I thought it was a really interesting uh, story about Whole Foods. What I, what I really liked was the guy was stubborn about knowing his customer and knowing the landscape of where he was, which I think is, is so important. If you ever want to try to start anything, um, know where you are uh, because you have knowledge that someone else doesn't and it's, it's invaluable. Um, and that's not just in real estate, it's in anything, uh, local is, um, that's just invaluable. I mean, I can't put it any other way. It's hard to underwrite what that Intel is worth, uh, when you're making business decisions. And in this case, that, that venture capitalist that skipped giving them money said it was the biggest mistake of his career, uh, that he missed. Uh, and sometimes you can get myopic and, you know, not trust this person who's boots on the ground. But uh, to me, boots on the ground is, is everything. It's, it's, I'll bet on that way more than, you know, some sophisticated sort of statistical model. I was like, boots on the ground matters. Um, interesting. Speaking of local and interacting with what's right in front of you, uh, I sent you that Wall Street Journal article, yeah. right? I read that. Yeah. I forget what the title was. Was it uh, schmoozing is dead or something? Yeah, like after work schmoozing is ending or something like that. 
Yeah, so this article basically has uh, outlined that people are no longer sticking around the office to grab a drink afterwards. Um, there was a anecdotal, uh, you know, story about you know how they used to do fantasy football and the draft would start at like six thirty and people would get pizza, get some drinks, and it would last till eleven. And now everyone agreed to do it, but they wanted to do it at 4.30 and they were out the door by six. Yeah. Which, you know, it's just, it is a, another paradigm shift in what we have seen with whether it's, you know, work from home or just um, a change in, you know, kind of office culture in general. Maybe this shift was going to happen no matter what. Um you know, I don't, I don't know what, well, what, what's your opinion about this as you hear this? What, what's your kind of visceral reaction when you hear not happy hour, but work happy hour, possibly going bye-bye? I, I think it's a shame, to be honest with you. So I remember, do you remember the Lehman uh, happy hours? That, yes. That we the, would... Lehman unhappy hour. What yeah, are you talking about? <laughs> I they, never enjoyed any of them. They were not fun. And so like when you're 20 something years old and I don't remember, maybe at times they were on like the company dime. I, I'm, yeah, my, my memory I think is if, crazy. If, if some like, you know, if a, if a vice president was down there, yeah. we knew we weren't paying. And it was Moran's was the name of that. Moran's, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. But like they were okay. Be, part, part of the problem was we just went to like a noisy bar and we stood in a corner and we didn't interact with anybody else outside of our group. And so it was kind of like, why don't we just do this upstairs, like in the, the little kitchen area. Right. Um, so I didn't quite enjoy it back then, to be honest, you know, who did enjoy it? All the like older married people, Oh, they loved it. They dying just loved to go. It. Yeah. The, the married dudes loved it. What are you talking about? It was like they got to make fun of us. Yeah, exactly. Make us go get the drinks. Um, and half of them didn't want to go home. They didn't uh, want to go basically. home. Yeah. They didn't want to go home. And they didn't make that a secret. Either. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they were like, I don't want to go home. They loved it. Um, uh, you know, uh, my opinion on it is it's kind of 50 50. I, I really, really dislike the coworker who moves up the ranks because of happy hour, because they schmooze, because, you know, they, they're willing to like give up their personal time to kiss ass to a boss that is intolerable under any other circumstance, right? You wouldn't want to hang out with this guy, but it is going to advance your career. You know, I, I wouldn't have a problem with that if it was somebody who was of equal skill. But I have seen in my corporate career people advance, you know, their outcomes strictly on the social bullshit. So that I don't like. But, you know, the other 50% side of me, it would be totally hip, like hypocritical of me to say I didn't benefit from from that you know i i have countless close friends from it i don't know if we'd be doing this podcast without it frankly yeah um would we really have gotten to know each other Pro I, mean, I think as we spent so much time we in spent that office, 
probably, and we were probably the two people that were kind of vocal about how much we disliked working there. Um, For sure. So maybe, but there's, you know, we have some friends from that era that weren't as, in, you know, that were more introverted, weren't that extroverted. And I think that kind of forced them to, to come out and, and you get to know them in a different environment. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I, I, I got more good out of it than bad. Yeah. Let's put it that way. It's, you know, there's... yeah, my frustration with that, the, the kiss ass, but that person's going to find a way to kiss ass no matter what. Yeah. They'll, they'll right? succeed no matter what. Yeah. They'll be like, oh yeah, like I'll mow your lawn or whatever, you know, like they'll, they'll, yeah, they'll figure <laughs> out something. They'll figure out something, a kiss ass there. That's like, you know worst type of coworker of all time. But um, like I said, I think that the loss of that socialization after work, uh, I, it, it, it would be a little sad to see that go. And it seems like it is. It, it just seems like uh, it is, is not commonplace for people to do that on Thursdays and Fridays anymore. You can, you can find different ways to engage. So I like to, you know, go out to lunch with people and, you know, spend an hour just shooting the shit, uh, getting to know them on a personal level. I think it's really important for a couple of reasons. Number one, if you don't build some rapport with somebody um, outside of strictly job responsibilities, it's hard to it's hard to trust, and it's hard to call oh. on somebody when you need them yeah. and have them respond favorably. So, you, you know, I'll put you on the spot. If you have a analyst or an associate that works for you, who you have basically no relationship with, which I know doesn't exist, but it's just a very transactional relationship. They work for you, you pay them, and you all of a sudden get some work that comes in late Friday and you need that person to do some work. Maybe it's not the whole weekend, but you need them to do a little bit of work over the weekend. If you have no relationship with them, you know what they're thinking when you call them and ask them to do the yeah. work. No, thanks. This is just a yeah. paycheck. I am not bought in. I don't really like, I, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing you a favor because you're not doing me any favors. You're not paying me any extra for this. Right. Oh yeah. I, I agree. It humanizes the whole circumstance. Um, you know, and again, I, I think it's impossible for somebody to know when you're having a bad day, too, if you don't really reveal sort of parts of your personality. Yep. And, that, and that's, you know, you go to work, you know, 330, 340, 300, whatever days out of the year, whatever it is, 300 days. I don't know. Um, one of them is going to be bad. You know, of course. you're going to end up having to go to work when something in your personal life isn't going well. And it really does help if the person knows you and, and is like, you know, that's not how Paul usually is. There's something going on. Uh, let me find out and, and let me give him a little cover, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I can, I can give you some cover for the rest of the week, man. Like just take it easy, just gather yourself, come back next week. And, you know, and you don't get that without um, having, those Gotta put in the work, my friend. Yeah, I'll say it, man. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm sure alcohol has caused a lot of problems at work. Probably um, more. I'm, yeah. I'm sure of it. We've seen it. 
but it does get people to drop their guard a little bit. And I think sometimes that helps. You can't overdo it. And then of course you can't cross lines. I mean, I'm sure half of these sexual harassment things we've heard, there's some alcohol behind it. So I'm not saying alcohol is like this amazing thing that can fix a corporate culture, but just anything can get people to drop their guard just a little bit. Yeah. Um, so you kind of under understand them as a person. I, I think it, it matters because um, what's important for me is, is what you said. It's, it's not just when there's a lot of work coming down the pike. It's when they make a mistake. Yep. It's that you don't feel so threatened or you have so, enough of a connection with me that you're going to tell me right away and, and we'll, we'll figure this out because mistakes happen. What's much worse is when you avoid the problem, right? And it's like, uh, but there's that saying from Henry Kissinger, I believe, problem avoided, crisis invented. Yeah. And, and that happens. And so I, I think uh, losing this, you might see some more crisis in, invented because people feel a little less comfortable talking to one another. I don't know. We'll see. But it's... Uh, um, I, I did benefit from it greatly. Didn't like the kiss asses, but, um, I also vocalized that. So that's okay. Yeah. And, and now, nowadays it's not just happy hour. Uh, my team, we do like outings. We'll go to, you know, escape room. Uh, I just started like a little round table to play poker, learn and play poker in the office. So it's just, you know, fun. Yeah. You know, you can have a beer, but nobody's getting there. Nobody's getting trashed and, you know, out yeah, of line. I, so. I think that's, that's a good thing. So let's, let's hope it continues. Um, we'll, uh, I'll let you know, um, if I, uh, if I see people out, uh, and about, uh, with, at a happy hour, but I, I have to say, I don't see it as much. I don't, I don't see yeah. as many people coming with their companies out like before comedy show, I used to see a lot more of it. I don't see it as much. Uh, might be a couple people from a company, um, but it's not. It's not what it used to be. Yeah, the pandemic, you know, poisoned us all. Right? We want to get home to our families, or we want to get home to, I don't know. You know, some people have weird hobbies that um, they developed during the pandemic that they, you know, dedicate a lot of time to. I get that some of that residual effect is still there, but. You gotta, if you're invested in your work, if you're invested in building a team, uh, and culture at your organization, you got to put in the time. And unfortunately yeah, that's absolutely. after work hours. Absolutely. Anyway, we're going to wrap up cause we're running out of time here. But, uh, so I screwed up last week. Apparently, uh, you know, we do trailer trash, but, um, million miles away is uh being streamed on amazon it um, was it was limited release so you you weren't totally wrong so okay we'll, limited release we'll, okay. what i think we're having a trouble having trouble with is how much in that how limited much? release it did in the opening weekend we'll figure yeah. it out or at least get a rough number but it's probably a lot smaller than it's even six and a half lower. that you estimated yeah yeah it's gonna be way lower than that um but anyway we'll uh We'll make a guess on on a movie premiering this weekend, Dumb Money. Um, and this was uh, this movie's about the short squeeze of GameStop and how hedge funds lost a lot of money and these small little guys uh, made a ton of money. Um, 
<clears throat> it's a it's kind of a even the preview looked pretty fun. Yeah, uh, I thought it looked like it's going to be a fun movie. I don't I don't think it's going to be quite as good as The Big Short. That I thought that was such a well done movie and took such a complicated yeah um, you know Concept. topic to yeah. discuss and broke it down and did a great job of it. I don't know if it'll go to that level, but I think this movie is going to make some money and sneak up uh, on some people. I think it is going to do well. I love this movie. I am absolutely going to see this in the theaters. Uh, oh, wow. Because, okay. Yeah. I like just conceptually the, what was done was so unprecedented and, and creative to be honest with you. I think the the most impressive thing about it is holding the line right because the the strategy does not work if people get greedy and at least the the first wave of people that were you know investing in GameStop and propping up the price they didn't sell they were sitting on tens of millions of dollars there were a couple of people that were yeah, like uh... nine figure gains right people like you and me who were they, holding they didn't listen the line. to that Kenny Rogers song <laughs> You got to know when to hold them and you got to know when to walk away, baby. Yeah. So I hope this movie does really well. So based on the fact that you're going, what do you think it's going to make? I mean, (laughs) nothing, right? (laughs) The antithesis of the target demographic, but uh, I I think it's going to do pretty well. Um, Fifteen million bucks. Throw it out. Wow, there. okay. That's 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 a big swing. Yeah. Um it, it I have seen it being marketed. It's out there. You know, they must have had a solid marketing budget. I thought the trailer was really funny. Yeah. Um I'm going with ten. I think it'll okay. make ten. I think it's gonna do well. Um and I I don't know if I'll go to the movie theater to watch it, but I'm going to watch it at some point. Um, I, I, I thought, like I said, I liked the big short a lot. This is a kind of big short light, uh, but I think it'll be a fun topic. Oh, it's a brilliant topic. I mean, yeah. th- can you imagine, think, think of it this way. You have guys like Steve Cohen, right? Griffin, these like major hitters, major right. hitters in hedge funds that are sitting on one side and scratching their head, how they can outsmart like these, like nobodies sitting behind a computer, right. That have probably owned 10 stocks in their life. Right. If that, yeah. If that, yeah, they took on the Titans of industry Mm -hmm. and they gave them some, they gave them hell. Yeah. They, they got into a street fight with them and they lost the nerds (laughs) won, baby (laughs) nerds won. They did. They did. But uh, that that's going to be our episode. Um, I hope everybody joins us next week. We're going to keep an eye on a lot of different things. Um, I think it's going to be a up and down uh, end of the year between here and the end of the year. Um, so we'll uh, we'll keep trying to dissect things and uh, we'll see you next week. See you. See you, everyone.